Well, I have a new series for you, and it's a mini-series. It's not quite as long. Uh, but uh, I've been, I, I don't know if I've shared this with, with you, but uh, I have been continuing my education. And I've been going to school, taking classes all over again. It's not quite as fun in your 40s, but I will say that there's a greater appreciation uh, when, you're, when you're learning and you're trying to, f- you know, figure some of these things out. And, and the class I'm taking right now is the Doctrine of the Sanctuary. And I leave tomorrow morning, and I'll be gone for uh, a few days as we have intensives. And then I get to come back and do a lot of post work. But one of the things that as I've been studying and, and researching and really kind of digging into is, is this whole idea of the intercession of Jesus, what he does in the heavenly sanctuary. And it's kind of a unique thing. You know, not everyone believes that there is a sanctuary in heaven. That is something that may be a little bit unique, I would say, to, to Seventh-day Adventism. And it all stems from that, that verse, and there's multiple verses throughout Scripture, but there's one main verse that, that often is read when God told Moses to build a sanctuary so that he may dwell among his people. And he's going to model it after a pattern of the heavenly. So there's a pattern after this. Now you go through scripture and you'll find cases of where you have covering cherubim that were in heaven. One of them decided to book it out of there or he made a choice that ultimately got him booked, kicked out of there, whatever the case. And, and so there's, there is a, an understanding that there was a earthly sanctuary that was created but it was patterned and modeled after the heavenly sanctuary. And by the way, and this is kind of a bonus for you, the heavenly sanctuary was not created to deal with the sin problem. I know that's what we think, and that's a very narrow-minded way of thinking about the heavenly sanctuary. Understand this, the heavenly sanctuary was created way before sin. It was a place where God resided. It was his home. It's a warm environment. It's a place of worship. It's a place where, where he lives. And yes, they had to use it in order to deal with the sin problem. But recognizing that if, if Lucifer was a covering cherub in all of his splendor and all of his glory, covering cherub where? It had to be in the house of where God lived. It had to be a place where it was. So the, the sanctuary was created for beauty. It was created for warmth. It was created as a home. And so as Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension, We believe that he's back home, where he belongs. And the question is, is what is he doing? And that's what we're going to talk a little bit now, because the Bible tells us that he is interceding on our behalf. The intercession of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, what in the world does that even mean, right? What what does this mean? Let's take a few scriptures just to recognize and understand that what I'm saying is true, what Jesus is actually doing there in the heavenly sanctuary. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word now, pray that you would guide us in this study and that you would lead us into your, to your presence as we study your word. Pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. And anoint my lips and my mind that the words that I speak would be from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
there's a few verses that I wanted to, to share with you as we just kind of get started in all of this. And the first one is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. I also have it on the screen today. But it says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one what? Mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We want to establish here, first and foremost, that there's only one mediator. And who is that mediator? Only Jesus can intercede. No one else can intercede. There's no pastor, there's no priest, there's no saint, there's no statue, there's no nothing that can intercede on your behalf or someone else's behalf when it comes to sin. It can only be Jesus. Jesus is our intercessor. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for who? For the transgressors. Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is what? Who is interceding for us? And in Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember, the high priest was the one that did the intercession in the earthly sanctuary back in Moses' time, and he was interceding on behalf of all people. And so here it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Our Jesus, our Savior, sympathizes with us, right? He, he, he sees what we're going through. He's not up there just, you guys figure this thing out on your own. But he watches us. He loves us. He cares for us. He's helping us all the way through it. And then Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make what? Intercession for them. He's able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives, always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our mediator. And then we look at that and we say, what does that even mean? (laughs) What does it mean to mediate? And in our context, within our culture, mediation, I would say common known mediation, is very different than biblical mediation. What do I mean by this? Well, this is our common model of mediation. You have two people that are very angry with each other. Look how angry these guys are, right? And they get so angry, one runs this way and one runs that way. And so oftentimes, whether you're dealing with 
uh, a relationship that has gone bad uh, between a husband and a, a, a wife, or you have just two friends or business partners, whatever it is, and so what do you do? You hire a, a mediator. And this mediator is nice and friendly, and he listens to both sides, and, and he makes sure that both sides are heard, and hopefully the whole goal is that those angry people become happy people, and they come back together as one. That is our common model of mediation. That's how you and I usually will think of mediation. But if we were to believe this same way about God, it creates a very, very false teaching, a very poor theology. Ultimately, it tells us that God is angry with humans and needs to be appeased or calmed down. So Jesus prays for us and begs the Father to no longer be so strict and harsh and to bless the humans. If we follow the human mediation model, this is what we come up with. God's angry. Jesus comes in and says, please, 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 Father, I need you to please, please change your attitude towards the humans. Do you see how that's false teaching? And you might be thinking to yourself, no, I don't see anything wrong with that. (laughs) Well, let's talk about it, okay? Because if we keep going down that road, here's the thing. Biblical mediation does not mean that Jesus needs to beg, It does not mean that Jesus is trying to change God's feelings about us. And it's not, it does not mean that Jesus is trying to appease an angry God. Oftentimes, the way that we go through this whole process, it seems as though we think that there's some type of arm wrestling match going on between the Father and the Son. And so in this big celestial thing, here they are. Look how ripped Jesus is, by the way, in this picture. It's just amazing to me what, what AI can do. But here, here it's, just, it's just, we look at this. This is bad theology. This is not accurate. This is not correct. What kind of, what kind of Godhead would that be to have them at odds with one another while one's trying to destroy us, while the other one's trying to save us. It's just not biblical. So how is biblical mediation different? Well, let's let Jesus tell us. In John chapter 16, verses 26 and 27. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. It even says that, that I, I, do not, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. I don't have to go and beg. I don't have to do that, Jesus says, because the Father loves you. Jesus does not beg. In John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus does not need to change the attitude of God toward us. God already loves us. He loved us so much that he, he, the, the God had put together a plan of redemption. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 19, says that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What is it? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to who? To himself. So Jesus is not, he's reconciling us to God. He's not reconciling God to us. Do you see the difference? He's not trying to appease God. He's not trying to change his mind and do all these things. He is, he's the one bringing us to him. How? What qualifies Jesus to intercede on our behalf? What gives him the right to step in and to do this? In Romans chapter 8, 34, who is to condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who what? Who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What gives Jesus the qualifications to intercede on our behalf? His death on the cross. What he chose to do for you and for me going to the cross so that you and I could be counted blameless, so that you you and I could be counted as righteous, so that you and I could be, before our God, as children, blameless and pure. I mean, you gotta think about that that this whole concept, this whole idea, his, his death on the cross then gives him the ability or the qualifications to go and to intercede. And then the question could be asked, well, is is the interceding less important, just as important, or more important than the cross? Then you start to think, hmm. Here's one thing that the great controversy says. It says the intercession of Christ in, in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death, he began that work, which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. There, the light from the cross of Calvary is reflected. I love that. That what Christ is doing in heaven as an intercession for us Oftentimes, we look at that as being scary. I, the way that often I was, I was told, and I've shared this with you before, but I have to share it to you because it's just one of those things that, that it, it scared me to death. Growing up in the Seventh-day Adventist church was a very scary thing. I don't know how else to describe it. It was so fear-based, and it just it made me question if I was ever, ever, ever going to be saved. Because what I was told was that Jesus is in heaven as our mediator, but he was also in this cleansing stage of the sanctuary, which means that it was judgment time. And in that judgment time, that at some point, and it didn't matter if you were four years old, eight years old, 16 years old, 32 years old, at some point in your life, your name would be brought up And at that time, in that moment, in your life, no matter where you are, what you're doing, you were then judged. And it didn't matter what what you had decided previous. It didn't matter what was going to happen after in your life. It was only in that particular moment. 
And in that moment, if you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing, then that was it. You were judged to hell. And it didn't matter what you would do beyond that moment. You could, the next day, you could have turned your life around, you could have repented, you could have accepted Christ back into your life and totally changed your life and lived for him for the rest of your life and it wouldn't matter. That's what people told me. It's not what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists, by the way. It was a misunderstanding of, of a teacher that was in my life who told me that stuff. And so can you imagine at 11, 12, 13 years old, constantly questioning, wondering, has my name already been read? Has, has my name already come up? Well, what if it comes up? You, no wonder I have so much anxiety in my life. <laughs> but but here's, here's the beauty of it. Because everyone everybody wants to talk, everybody then would say, but because Jesus went to the cross, your sins can be forgiven as long as you do all of these things, Christ will mediate for you. But according to this quote right here, that this whole process of what's happening in the heavenly sanctuary is just as redemptive and just as beautiful, just as essential in the plan of salvation as the cross. So as the cross sets us free, so does intercession. So does Jesus as our intercessor, as our mediator, as the one who bestows and gives us his righteousness. It is a freedom that we get with Jesus. Only he can intercede. Only he gives us that strength. Only he gives us that power. As one of my professors stated, Jesus Christ is our intercessor because he died for us. What was accomplished on the cross needs to be applied, realized, and actualized in our lives. We need to enjoy the benefits of his death for us. And you think, what in the world does that, enjoy the benefits? Oftentimes, we go through life feeling guilty, feeling full of shame, always wondering if we're ever going to measure up. Am I going to get this right this time? Am I going to be able to overcome the, the, the things that are in my life? What Jesus did on the cross set you free. It set you free. There is nothing that stands in the way between you and our Father in heaven. Jesus has reconciled you. Jesus sanctified you. Jesus continues to reconcile you. Jesus continues to sanctify you. Jesus continues to set you free every single day. When you talk about the benefits or living it, to apply it, to realize it, to actualize it in your life, that this is a reality in my spiritual walk with him. Not just some good idea, not just some figment of my imagination, not just something that is read in Romans somewhere and that's, oh, well, that's, that's a crazy book. No, no, no. This is your life now as a son or daughter of our creator God. He has done everything for you and for me to be with him for eternity. 
I'll remind you of this verse again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. All this is from God. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of what? Of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. All of this is from who? From our God. He is giving this. Through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's reconciling the world to himself. He does not count the trespasses against us. And he is entrusting us to do what? To go and share and to reconcile with others and that they can know that they are being reconciled to God as well. Otherwise known as the gospel. (laughs) One of my absolute favorite quotes of all time comes out of the book of Steps to Christ, page 62. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, past tense, as sinful as your life may have been, for his sake you are accounted what? Righteous. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Can I, I think this is really important that we understand this, that, that what? For his sake, whose sake? His sake, you are counted what? Righteous. Surely that pastor's wrong. How in the world could this be? It's because Christ did it. You didn't do it. He did it. You're not righteous. He's righteous in you, which then makes you righteous. You see, it's all about being in Christ. It's all about him being in you, right? You are in Christ. That is your status. And then having Christ in you is the benefit of that status. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for his sake you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in whose place? Yours, mine. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. I want to remind you of something today, my friends. The work that Christ is doing in the heavenly sanctuary is this right here. Interceding on our behalf, reconciling us, and standing in the place of us. How many, how many regrets do we have in the room? Anybody? Anybody have a regret you wish you could take back, right? Just one, two, I know. You guys are really great people. I would imagine that we've all have something in our lives that we wish we hadn't done. And in the eyes of our God, you haven't. Doesn't that just 
I hope that hits your heart as much as it hits mine. Because if I could pay millions and millions of dollars to go and back and to change my decisions, to not hurt so many people, to not be so selfish, to not say dumb things, I would give anything. And while I've had to ask for forgiveness and while I've had to go and and reconcile with people and tell them that I'm sorry for saying what I said and what did what I did, in God's eyes, he looks at me like I never did it. Only because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. You are accepted before God just as if You had never sinned. So what does the intercessory ministry of Jesus really mean? We'll find out. (laughs) But we had to lay the foundation. We had to lay the foundation. And in this series, we're going to continue to study this out, but we're also going to look at some serious myths of Adventism, some areas within our church that we think are true because someone else said it, but when we look at Scripture and the Spirit of Prophecy, we're going to see that they are simply myths, they are not true, and you can have assurance that our God is with us even to the end of the age. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for just a simple basic start of understanding that you are for us, not against us. That you love us, you're not angry with us. That you sent your son for us, to to, to die for us. And he's not trying to change your mind, he's bringing us to you. So Lord, I pray this morning Just as that quote said, if we come to you, I pray that we come to you. That we place our life in your hands. That we would recognize our status of being in Christ, which means that we are justified, we are sanctified, and, Lord, one day we're going to be glorified. But every day you walk with us, every day you you guide us, As we come to you, may we then live this life for you. As we live in this life of reconciliation, may may we be messengers of that reconciliation. That you're not in the sanctuary out to get us. (laughs) You're out to save us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.